Good morning. Uh, The scripture on which the sermon is based is found in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. Jesus teaching on divorce and remarriage. Woo! You know, there probably is no more controversial or, for some of you, painful topic that the pastor can preach on on Sunday than, than this one. The fact that every one of us has been profoundly affected by divorce, and there are so many different questions. We are individual situational questions that we bring to the, to the text. I'm going to do the best that I can to cover a, a wide range of those, recognizing that I probably won't get specifically to yours, but I would be more than happy and um, willing to, to meet with you and, and, and talk it through together. And Jesus left there, which was the northern part of Israel, Galilee. And he went south to the region of, the Ju- of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And crowds gathered to him again and, a- and again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up and in order to test him asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? There were two rabbinic schools of thought on divorce in that day. One of them, uh, the rabbi taught that you could divorce your wife for any reason. The specific phrase they used was any cause. The rabbi said that that if she did something so uh, trivial as to burn his meal, then, then he had cause. The other group was more conservative, and they maintained based on Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4, that a husband could only divorce his wife in cases of adultery. Verse 3, Jesus answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Um, It's not terribly clear in the context here what school of thought these Pharisees were coming from, but if you read the other passages, you'll find that these guys were part of the, the any cause camp. They thought that divorce was admissible. No-fault divorce, easy divorce. And the, the very existence of legislation in the, the law of Moses meant that God was rather satisfied for divorce to take place. Jesus says that is certainly not the case. Verse 5, and he said to them, because of the hardness of heart, he, God wrote, Moses wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together as the Book of Common Prayer says, let no man render or put asunder. Let no man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. There are two major positions in Christianity today on the, the matter of divorce and remarriage. The first is what we, 
we could call the, the permanent view, the indissoluble view. And that maintains the marriage covenant between a husband and a wife is an unbreakable, permanent, and indissoluble covenant. Once you are married to your spouse, you always remain married to that spouse. The, and the only thing that can possibly sever those, those bonds is death. This was the view of the, many of the early church fathers. It is also the view of the Roman Catholic Church, and it's pretty straightforward. They point to Mark 10. God made two people into one flesh, one person, and there's no way of reversing that order. So while a person can separate from their spouse and even go so far as to, uh, as to obtain a civil divorce, in the eyes of God, you are always married to them. And that is why Jesus teaches that any subsequent remarriage is simply an act of adultery. And uh, ergo, all sexual relations in that so-called marriage are adulterous. You may be aware of the fact that it's kind of, there's a, a big dust-up in the Roman Catholic Church that divorced and remarried Roman Catholics are not allowed to receive the Lord's Supper because... Because they are living in a, a grave state of sin. The only way that a remarried Catholic can receive the sacrament is both if the husband and wife agree to live as brother and sister, you know, so celibate under the same roof. But the bottom line on the, the permanent view is there really is no such thing as remarriage. At least that's my understanding of it. The other major position is the one that is held by Protestants and Eastern Orthodox, and I think by Coptic Christians, which holds that divorce and remarriage is allowable under limited circumstances. So both sides agree that divorce is a terrible evil. It was never God's design that every divorce is the product of sin, but the, the rest of us say that not every divorce is sinful. The reason we hold this passage is uh, because of several other relevant portions of Scripture. Matthew chapter 19 is where Matthew covers the same material here, the Pharisees, Jesus, divorce, and remarriage. But Matthew there includes on the mouth of Christ this exception clause. 19.9. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for porneia, and marries another, commits adultery. There's this exception, a Greek word that normally gets translated as unchastity or sexual immorality. Porneia, we talked about it before. It, it was really a catch-all term that was used by the, the first century writers to describe not just the physical act of adultery, but other forms of sexual unfaithfulness. And, and Jesus there in Matthew 19 says that that would constitute a legitimate ground for divorce. Uh, and saying that, he's, he's effectively siding with the, the more conservative school of rabbis in his day. And it's interesting, if you go to Matthew 19 verse 3, the question that the Pharisees ask is, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? They use the exact term, the phrase, that was, that was part of the, the debate in that day. 
So why does Matthew record the exception clause, but here Mark and elsewhere Luke doesn't? The answer to that question is, I have no idea. (laughs) In fact, anybody who tells you that they, they know the answer to that question is, you better just take to the hills and run, because I don't think anybody has a very good answer to that that question. The other relevant portion of Scripture would be 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, where Paul is laying out these, these few guidelines. Number one, he says that a Christian spouse should not separate from, i.e. divorce, because in, in the Greco-Roman world, basically, if you walked out on your spouse, that was de facto divorce. And so, you should not separate from your non-Christian spouse. So if all of a sudden Joe Corinthian comes to faith in Jesus Christ and his wife doesn't, Paul is saying that does not give you the right to separate from her. Number two, Paul goes on. He says that if you do divorce, if you do in disobedience to my teachings, then you must either remain single or pursue reconciliation with your former spouse. Finally, number three, he says that in the the case of desertion, where a non-Christian spouse decides to walk away from a Christian one, uh, you're abandoned, then as a Christian, he says, we're people of peace, we promote peace, and therefore you're, you're not bound in that instance, and you're free to remarry. That at least is... Uh, you know, the, the Protestant and Eastern Orthodox understanding of, of that passage. Again, both sides agree that divorce is horrible. From the beginning, God made them male and female. Uh, and he designed things for heterosexual, monogamous, lifelong commitment. When you uh, nobody falls in love, you fall into commitment. (laughs) Love is saying that I will be here no matter what. God's will is till death do us part. And the only reason we don't get till death do us part is because of the sinfulness and wickedness of of our own hearts. But in our understanding, effectively what we're saying is that marriage is not, to use a philosophical phrase, metaphysical. But it is covenantal. It is an agreement. Uh, a binding agreement, a promise, a contract with obligations and benefits. And the Bible talks a lot about covenants and gives a number of instances where covenants are broken by sinful people. And we're saying that this is a covenant. And once that covenant has been irretrievably broken, then in that instance, a divorce would be permitted. Permitted not required. It's very important. The Bible never says that you have to divorce your spouse for marital unfaithfulness. And believing what we do about the gospel and the beauty of of forgiveness for myriad of sins, um, there is something truly magnificent about uh, someone forgiving that kind of hurt and treachery and being reconciled to that person. A beautiful demonstration of the gospel. But we would say that it's permitted in limited circumstances. Uh, And the million-dollar question is, how limited are those circumstances? What if my spouse um, is involved in illegal and criminal behavior and just goes completely off the rails? Is that a form of desertion? 
What if my spouse develops a personality disorder that is so severe, their behavior becomes so aberrant that it's truly impossible to live with them under the same roof? What if I can handle my spouse's angry and belittling verbal abuse, but my children, I see my children being totally emotionally destroyed by it? What do you do with child abuse, domestic violence, um, death threats? I can tell you that, I mean, you and I both know that is, that is the real world that we live in. That, um, that's not sensationalist rhetorical questions. And from a pastoral perspective, the permanent view would be so much easier for me, <laughs> right? Because the answer to every one of those questions is as is, is difficult as it would be to say to a spouse is nevertheless very black and white, cut and dry, no. You know, right? No, you are not allowed to divorce and you're not allowed to remarry. You can uh, you can disentangle yourself financially and domestically. You can move out. You can, you you could even you could separate. You could even pursue uh, possibly a civil divorce. But no, you can never get another husband, and you can never never get another father for your children. Um, and I said that, that would make my job a lot easier because it takes it takes away all of the muddiness of ethical questions in our twenty first century. But I don't think that it's the fairest interpretation of Scripture. And um, I think one of the hardest things in the world to do is to take the few principles the Bible gives us on this matter, especially, and, and try to uh, wisely apply those principles to the muddy complexities. I mean, yet that's what I think God has summoned me to do as a pastor and the elders to do. So if you are contemplating the question, should I get a divorce? Let me put it provocatively to you, um, my answer. And that is, it's not your decision. At least it's not your decision alone. Um, there's a reason why we, most of us, get, get married in a church or married by a minister. We at least take vows to God and not to the state of Idaho. Because what we are saying, for us fundamentally as Christians, marriage is not a you know, it's not a domestic relationship. It's not a civil relationship. It's not a tax break. It is a covenantal commitment that we are making to God in the context of the family of God. And, and therefore, it's not like we get to just do the universal um, individual expression of, I'm, I'm going to make the decision on my own. At least that's not how it, it's not how it ought to be. And you and I both know that when people try to depend on their own sense of right and wrong, when they are operating on the emotional fringes of life, that is always a recipe to, for disaster. When people try to say, oh, I know in my heart of heart that this is the right thing to do, like every, every travesty of human behavior has, has been committed under those auspices. Um, you and I also have watched countless numbers of friends and family members go through the sheer trauma of divorce and watched people uh, I mean it is so traumatic people are they go crazy they're you just go loony and to think that at those moments you're able to to make a wise clear-headed biblical 
decision while you're on the emotional fringes of life. That's one of the reasons God gives us a church and provides us spiritual authorities who are hopefully, hopefully, um, you know, spiritually minded and studied in the Bible and can help us make the the wisest and, and rightest decisions. So if you're contemplating that that question, should I should I get a divorce? I'd ask you to please come and speak with us and and do so at the beginning when you're first contemplating it and not like how it almost always happens at the end when you've already de facto you know made made a decision. I believe that porneia is broader than than simple simply adultery and that desertion is broader than simply walking out the door. I believe that physical abuse of a spouse can be a form of desertion. And other things can as well. But the fact that Jesus spoke this way when asked specifically about this topic indicates that he intends most in most cases his disciples to persevere and endure a bad and even terrible marriage. That is why in other passages where this conversation is recorded, the disciples are like, whoa, I, I can't believe it. They're shocked by his teaching. They say, well, we, it would just be better to be, to be single than to have to stay into a bad marriage. And he says that is a cost of discipleship in, in certain Christian lives. You don't get to drop a disappointing spouse uh, to find a better match, which was the, the very thing that he was arguing against in, in that day. Well, let's ask some, several other questions. Um, what if you were divorced and, uh, and you did not have biblical grounds? Where does that put you? Well, if you're, if you're a Roman Catholic, they understand that to mean that you're in a continual state of divorce. Um, and that the, the, the right thing for you to do would be to live as, as brother and sister with your spouse. Uh, Protestants, on the other hand, would maintain that the initial act of remarriage was adulterous, but, but that your subsequent remarriage is not a non-marriage, but it is a real marriage, and therefore it, it's not abidingly sinful. Uh, and we would say the answer is not to live in a state of domestic celibacy, and it is certainly not to get divorced again. I know that some people have asked that. Well, should I, should I get re-divorced? Uh, no, it's to make your present marriage everything that God intended for marriage to be. Uh, everything that Paul writes about in Ephesians chapter 5, about Jesus' love for his bride, the picture of marriage that's given there, the marriage picturing the self-sacrificial love of a husband and wife. By God's grace, put every ounce of your effort to to live the kind of marriage you, he, he, he designed every one of them to be. I would also counsel you to remember that divorce is not the unpardonable sin. Um, it is a grave sin. Um, it, it, is, it is not too, too grave for the cross. And it's very important, I mean, in the context of a Christian congregation, that, that you don't allow... Uh, divorced people in your church to feel a stigma because of their their past. I mean, we all depend, I hope, that we're depending on nothing but the blood of Jesus 
and that when we sing about grace alone, we really mean grace alone for every, every one of us. I know as elders, we will do everything in our power to see to it that divorced people don't feel like they're walking around with a scarlet A attached to their chest. I'll give you a very personal example. My mom and dad were high school sweethearts. Grew up in Atlanta, Georgia. If you've ever been to downtown Atlanta before, the, the most famous burger joint there, and I'm sure it's been highlighted on the Food Network or something like that, is called the Varsity. Var- Varsity's been around since, I don't know, the, the 50s. And that was where my mom and dad, they went on their very first date. They, I don't even know all of the, the particulars about why they broke up after high school, but they did. My dad went to college at Georgia Southern, and my mom went to work right after high school for, I think it was Delta Airlines. She met a man there and married shortly after, um, after meeting him. My mom and, and I think this guy, they both grew up in the church. I mean, it's Atlanta in, in the 1970s. Uh, they both, I think, would self-identify as Christians. Neither of them would have self-identified as a devout Christian. I think it lasted for about three years. And after three years, they, at least as the story is recounted to me, they decided that this isn't working for us. They, they pursued an amicable divorce go our separate ways. I never even found out about this story till a camping trip when I was like 13. Um, it, it was, I guess every parent has to figure out when they think is the right time to, to tell their kids about the skeletons in their own closet. But, so that was, my parents then met, uh, I don't know, a year or so after, two years or so after a divorce, and they, they hit it back off. They were married, I think, in 74. Maybe it was 73. I came along in 75. My sister came along in 77. They enjoyed 24 years of, of happy marriage before my mom um, died. But based on my understanding of Scripture, their marriage was wrong. Mom should have either remained single or pursued reconciliation to that I'm sure she would have said uh, that unwise marriage that she engaged in. It's interesting to reflect on it on, on this side because, of course, I owe my life to the fact that, that my, my parents did marry and she did remarry and that they did provide a stable Christian home for me and my sister. So the really tough question, and I was shocked in my I spent so many hours researching this this week, so I, I felt like I covered all my bases. But the, the really tough question that it's like nobody wants to really answer um, is if you are divorced without biblical grounds and later you really you own up to that sin, truly own it and confess it genuinely as sin, publicly so, because you broke a public vow, you publicly confess it as sin and you grieve it. And you seek to make restitution to the whatever restitution looks like to your former spouse and to your children. And you pursue reconciliation. But reconciliation proves to be impossible. You know, be it through the remarriage of that former spouse or for, for other reasons. Does God expect you to live unmarried for the rest of your life? 
My controversial answer to that question is no. And I don't know if I'm in the minority in our denomination in holding to that. Um, Most of the guys, most of the pastors I listen to don't go on record saying anything about that. But I think that if a Christian truly owns their sin within the context of a of a church and pursues genuinely reconciliation, and yet that's that's not possible. I do think that they can be permitted to remarry. Um, and if I'm wrong, and I I tell you with so much of my theology, I say, Lord, if I am wrong, please forgive me, because I know I'm wrong probably on a whole lot of it. If I'm wrong, then please forgive me for giving you you bad pastoral counsel. I'll say that. The other really hard question that that comes up often is, is what if you are the innocent party uh, in a divorce and your spouse comes back to you and says, I am truly sorry, I'm totally repentant and I want to remarry. Are you obligated in that instance to forgive them and forget and to do that which is requested? You've got to feel the weight of that. Uh, because of how much you have been forgiven. I mean, every, uh, every time we look at forgiveness, it's, should I forgive my brother seven times? No, I say to you, not seven, but seven times 70. And always, the, the myriad of sins that God has forgiven us is always used as a, as a reason why we ought to forgive even our enemies for the, for the most terrible and heinous things that they have done. So you have to feel the weight of your obligation of forgiveness then to realize this, that when God forgives us of our sins, he does not absolve us of all earthly consequences due to those sins. And while God God takes away our eternal punishment for those sins, there are earthly penalties, and that is still true with the state of Idaho or the United States. Someone can be truly sorry for their crimes, and a penalty still remains. My, my, one of my favorite theologians, John Frame, he gives this example. He says, if your, teenage, if your teenager is guilty of drunk driving, but repents, you as a parent may very well choose to allow them to keep driving, both because they need to drive to get around and because they need to, to sense the, the fullness of their, res, uh, their restoration. But if a teenager habitually drinks and drives then that pattern can't be forgotten. You can't forget that, not only for the good of the child, but also for the good of their potential victims. The pattern has to be punished. And you can see the obvious parallels. Like if you are an aggrieved spouse, no, you do not have to take them back. And and many times you would be gravely foolish to do so. I'm going to address the last part of the sermon here to singles. You probably realize this fact, but it bears repeating. A great marriage is one of the supreme blessings of life, and a bad marriage is one of life's most crushing disappointments. The stakes are incredibly high. There are a large number of couples in our church who are deliriously happy with each other and are looking forward to spending the next 
50 or 60 years of their lives together. I cannot tell you what a sheer unspeakable delight it is to be married to someone who you genuinely like and, and admire and respect. Um, somebody who you think is the greatest human being alive today and who, in whose company there's no other place you'd rather be. That is so supremely enjoyable. Somebody who sanctifies you, who, who by virtue of their character and their Christ-likeness makes you more Christ-like. Um, yeah, if you, you pick up, uh, you ought to be reading, if you haven't, Tim Keller's The Meaning of Marriage. You go to chapter 4 and look at his, his chapter there on spiritual friendship and marriage, and you're going to know exactly what I'm talking about. There's nothing better. I can't think of anything better in this life. There are other couples in our church who are reasonably content with their marriage. They're realistic about certain disappointments. They've taken their share of bumps and bruises, but if they had to do it over again, they probably still would. They're hopeful about the future, but not like this wild-eyed optimism. Um, They know that they're... The things will never be quite what they dreamed they would be, but but that's okay. And then finally, there are a few marriages in our church that are marked by the deepest of regrets. It doesn't take much digging underneath the surface to find tremendous anger and tension. And And after the anger and tension has has been there long enough, it, it actually moves into quiet indifference. And you're just two people living under the same roof. Singles, which you probably realize, but it bears repeating, is God has organized the world in such a way that if your marriage is a source of disappointment and pain, it's very hard to be happy about life. It's not impossible, but it's, it's very difficult to be content to um, to even focus and concentrate and and normally what people do to cope with it is they just bury themselves in in either their work or some other hobby and that it, it really that whatever that thing is it becomes an obsession for them that's just their coping strategy so I can't stress to you enough the importance of not judging things based on external appearances. Like when you walk into a room and you instinctively, like we all do, we start sizing up this room of singles and, and you're like, no, eliminate, eliminate, eliminate. Oh, circle, maybe, maybe, maybe there's a possibility. We, we do that all on, on the basis of physical attractiveness. You've got, you've just got to realize that that somewhat dorky looking guy is going to make someone, you, deliriously happy as a wife. And that suave character, the smooth criminal over there in the corner, (laughs) he doesn't have, he doesn't have the spiritual maturity or the self-discipline to even give you 16 years let alone 60. So I just tell you, not 
to judge by outward appearances, that God would give you x-ray vision to see beneath the externals. Um, You should also carry at least one psychological exam that you can hand out (laughs) in a family history inventory that you... (laughs) In a Bible and theology exam, I tell you what, as a pastor, you become paranoid when you, like my kids, don't date them because it's going to be painful for you. Uh, No, parents, we can't be motivated by fear. Um, You're so much better off being single than being in a bad marriage. So much better off. And... Just remember that the greatest, wisest, most fully human person who's ever walked the face of the planet never married. And his greatest apostle never married. Um, And he was thankful for his singleness. And if you've got to carry your singleness into your 30s, your late 30s, into your 40s, I know it's lonely, but you're way, way better off doing so than marrying the wrong man or woman. A piece of good news. Oftentimes you hear uh, cited that Christian divorce, Christians divorce at the same rate as the general population. Everybody says like uh, anywhere between 40 and 50%. It's true that people who self-identify as Christians divorce at the same rate. But if you just use a few more statistical um, variables, grids, you drill down a little further, a couple filters, like do you regularly attend church? Do you read your Bible? Do you pray? You find that adultery and divorce goes way down in those instances, and the uh, the marital happiness of, of those couples is, is usually you know, way higher than the general population. And, and that's... Uh, that's 35 minutes. That's about all the, that I have to give you this morning. I know that, like, I'm not able to provide the pastoral sensitivity to, to all of the things that are, that are out there. Um, how, I mean, the big questions, like, how do you help people trying to recover from divorce? What do you do for the children? There's nothing more fearful in all the world than to have that kind of earthquake go through the life of, of a 13-year-old, right? How do you help the children? Um, there's so many areas that, that I haven't covered, and, and frankly, I don't even know how to cover. <laughs> but, but let's pray. Oh, Lord, we pray for our married friends who are struggling in marriage, greatly struggling, and who, apart from a work of your Spirit, seem ripe for divorce, if not if not in the next couple years, in in the years going ahead, for marriages where the husband and wife are drifting further and further apart. We we certainly don't come with condescending attitudes, for we know that marriage is the most demanding of all relationships. And we don't come claiming to know or understand all the issues in each of these fractured, desperate situations. We simply implore you, Lord Jesus, for your namesake and glory, that you would come near to them and preach peace to their hearts. Destroy the hostilities which have sabotaged their marriage. Make peace 
uh, bring reconciliation. And they're at their wits' end. Nothing else has worked. All of the marriage retreats and the counseling, the time spent in late-night conversations, listening and pleading, they, they have no more resources at their disposal but you. And you are the God who raises the dead, even dead marriages. And so as a demonstration of the beauty of the gospel and for the welfare of their precious children and and for the encouragement of other struggling marriages in our churches, may, may you intervene as the great physician and bring healing, miraculous healing, to the wounds that are there. No one is sufficient for these things but you, Lord Jesus. And that is why we humbly and boldly ask you for these things. In your most powerful name, amen.